Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Hi, I'd like to welcome you again to another study in the book of Exodus. And just before we begin, let's start with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for what you did for the Jewish people, Lord, thousands of years ago. And we thank you that because, Lord Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that what we learn about what occurred and how you revealed yourself at that time has great relevance to us today because you don't change. Help us, Lord, to understand as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now if you'd like to take your, and open in your Bible to Exodus chapter 1, I'm going to read these verses to put them right in front of our minds again, starting at verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters, to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. Now, in our last study together, we looked at this Pharaoh that we're focusing on here in Exodus chapter one, and we called him a Pharaoh of darkness because compared to the other Pharaoh that we have studied in Genesis chapter 41, that was a Pharaoh of light. He was the Pharaoh that elevated Joseph over the Egyptian people, but this was vastly different from that Pharaoh, so therefore we call him the Pharaoh of darkness. We saw how the, that Pharaoh in Exodus 41, that Pharaoh of light, he convinced his people, the Egyptian people, that they had found a treasure in that Hebrew man named Joseph because as he put it, and as he taught his Egyptian people, we have not found a man in whom the Spirit of God is. See, that's what he taught his people. That was the Pharaoh of light. And based on that, we saw how that Pharaoh of light also convinced his people to do good to Abraham's seed because they were of this man in whom the Spirit of God was. 
And because he convinced his people to do good to Abraham's seed, Egypt, his people, was blessed according to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, where God said, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, with that Pharaoh of light in our plain view, we now contrasted him with the Pharaoh of darkness that we've got before us here in Exodus 1. Whereas, on the other hand, this Pharaoh of darkness convinced his people to do bad to Abraham's seed, just the opposite of the Pharaoh of light who convinces people to do good, and he convinced his people to harm Abraham's seed, whereas the Pharaoh of light went ahead and brought in blessing to the land of Egypt because they did good to Abraham's seed. We're gonna see how this Pharaoh of darkness brings such a curse on Egypt that it just practically destroys the whole country. And because why? Because he did bad to Abraham's seed. Now he starts off, and this is where we pick it up here, in verse nine, with this very important word in verse nine, and you see it there, it says that he, the Pharaoh of darkness, said unto his people, this is very important to get, he is speaking to these Egyptian people here, and the thing he says first off, right off the bat, is behold. He said unto his people, behold. What we have before us is in the rest of all of Exodus 1 is the history of how this Pharaoh of darkness went about to convince his people to do bad to the Jewish people, and he starts off in his speech to the Egyptian people to convince them with this word, behold, behold, he said unto his people. So let's keep this clearly in mind. We are talking about a Pharaoh of darkness who hates the Jewish people. He hates the Jewish people. He wants to destroy the Jewish people, but he knows he cannot do it alone. He must rally the support of the Egyptian people to get this job done. So he has a strategy. First, he presents himself this Pharaoh of darkness, he's the great revealer. He's the great discloser. And he starts off with this word, behold. Behold, he says, have you seen? Have you seen how they are increasing and they are becoming more and more and more and more? See, that's his strategy there. Of course they were becoming more and more and more. Why? Because it was a fulfillment of the promise that God had made already in Genesis 46.3 where he spoke to Jacob, and he said, and here's how it quotes, and he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. That's the promise of God. Whenever God makes a promise, it doesn't matter who he's making it to, you can bet your bottom dollar that God is gonna make good on his promise. He's gonna fulfill it. And so he told Jacob here, he said, I will make of you in Egypt a great nation. There was a fulfillment there, and God was doing that, and that's why we read in Exodus 1-7, children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. It was simply a fulfillment of God's promise. Who can stand in the way of God? Who can stand in the way of God fulfilling his promise? No one can. And so this had happened there. And that's what everybody saw that. Everybody saw Exodus 1-7. It was also obvious to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to the Jewish people that there was a problem. And the problem was that Pharaoh, he saw it. Pharaoh 
having seen this great population increase that occurred to the Jewish people, was not willing to ascribe the increase in the population of the Jewish people to God. He was not willing to acknowledge that it was God who had caused them to increase in number. It's almost as if Pharaoh would say like this, you bring me any explanation you want. Obviously I see that the Jewish people have expanded mightily beyond what you would expect. And I will accept any explanation that anybody brings, only there cannot be this one word in that explanation, and that word is God. Bring any explanation you want, but do not say the word God in your explanation, because the minute you say the word God, it's rejected by me. Now, isn't that interesting? And isn't that what we see today? Isn't that what we see today? You know, King David made this statement in Psalm 8.3. He said this, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the star which thou hast ordained, when intelligent people look up into the sky, look up into the sky at night, see it star-filled, which is so obviously the work of God, David calls it the work of thy fingers. David calls it thy heavens. When gifted, smart people look at the moon and they look at the stars, instead of saying that those moon and stars are there because God put them there, they say, anything but God, you bring me any explanation you want, and I'll accept it as long as there's not one word in that explanation, and that word cannot be God. You cannot have God in the explanation, but I'll accept any kind of explanation that you bring as long as you don't say God. So what happens? Some fellow comes along and says, I know what happened, I'll explain to you what happened. You see, first, there was nothing. There was nothing, and then this nothing exploded, and it exploded and made a big bang. And from that big bang, we have the cosmos, and all the planets with their perfect rotation, and the Earth in its perfect location relative to the sun, so that it receives just the right amount of heat and so forth like that. And everyone who was searching for some explanation, like Pharaoh, that did not use the word God, said, perfect, it's gotta be right. We'll go for it, we'll call it the Big Bang Theory. Now, I'm a scientist. In my laboratory, both myself and other scientists on our team have been privileged, and that's what it is, privileged to research into some of the wonders of the human body, and we've done that for over 35 years. And sometimes, when I've realized how a part of the human body is operating, I find myself frustrated just to find the right words to express the magnificence of it all, to express the elegance of this science. And that's where King David has really helped me personally, because King David has come in with just perfect words to express the elegance that came from God in the human body, and he did it in Psalm 139.14, where King David said, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. See what David did? David looked at the human body, and then he also looked for perfect words, words that he could use to express what he saw. And David said, I've got it. And he chose four words, four perfect words to express the elegance of what he found in the human body. The first word he, said, he used was fearfully. 
fearfully. By using that word fearfully, King David was saying, the human body, ah, the human body. Now that's something to be revered. That's something there to be honored, that human body. That's like a beautiful piece of pottery. You put it on a shelf of honor, the human body. That's, now the human body, now we're talking about something to be respected, respected, see? And so King David said, when I look at the human body, I want to express what I see. And he says, so my first word is fearfully. Then King David chose a skit word, and that second word he used is the word wonderfully. Wonderfully. By using the word wonderfully, King David was saying, the human body, oh, now that's something that's full of surprises. Full of surprises. You see, by using the word wonderfully, King David was saying, the human body is full of what you didn't expect. He was saying, the more I research the human body, the more I am stunned. The more my breath is just taken away, it's breathtaking. The more I look into the human body, the more I find it sensational, just sensational. That's all tied up in that word wonderfully. King David said that when I look at the human body to express what I see, I search and I find my second word, and my second word is wonderfully, wonderfully. And then he chose a third word, and he said, when I look at the human body, the third word he chose is made, made. By using the word made, King David was saying, the human body, now that has just clearly just been made. I won't beat around the bush by calling it intelligent design. I'll say God made the body. That's the only explanation for something so beautiful, something so elegant as I see in the human body. So there's only one word that I can use, and that's the word made, and he did. And then the fourth word that David used to is marvelous, marvelous. He called the body marvelous work of God. By using the word marvelous, David was saying, oh, when I look at the human body, I just have to stop. I have to stop and just marvel. This work is nothing short of miraculous. It's miraculous. When I probe into the workings of the human body, I have to stop and ponder just consider deeply and ponder what I have observed. And in order to process everything that I've seen in this body, I need time, I have to digest it, I have to process it because I have to stop, I have to pause, I have to process the amazement of it all. It's nothing short of a miracle. And so David uses the word marvelous work of God. And if you were to ask King David, if he was sure, are you sure, David, in what you were saying? King David wrote it right in that, in that verse of that psalm where he said, I am absolutely sure, I am so sure, he says, that my soul knows right well. If you were to say, but King David, we have many notable scientists today. King David, we have Richard Dawkins who say that the human body was not made by God, but that somehow from lightning, simple molecules were formed, and somehow they combined to form complex molecules in large enough quantities that somehow in a slime on Earth, they became microorganisms, and somehow that became man. And King David, we were to say to him, what do you think? 
that the majority of notable scientists say the human body was not made by God. King David would look you right in the eye and say, I would say to those notable scientists that say that the human body was not made by God, I would say two words, and he would use the words withered intellect, dried up intellect. Why withered intellect? Because young children know that God created them. That's when their intellect is, uh, relatively speaking, at the pinnacle, at the highest point, because they know they were created by God. But then they grow up, and they're taught that they were not made by God, and that teaching that they're not made by God withers and dries up their intellect. Everyone sees the human body, but some say it's made by God, and some say it's not made by God. Well, everyone saw Exodus 1-7, that the children of Israel were fruitful, that they had increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Everybody saw that, but some say the Jewish people expanded because God was fulfilling his promise to Jacob, and others say they just somehow expanded on their own without God. Well, Pharaoh was one of those who said that the Jewish people just expanded somehow without any help from God. And Pharaoh is acting just like Satan because Satan is known as the great deceiver. And Pharaoh here is now the great deceiver of the Egyptian people. So he starts off with the behold. And as is true with all deception, it all starts with truth to draw the hearers in. And what Pharaoh has said in verse nine is true. The Jewish people had grown in terms of numbers, but as is the typical pattern with deception, after the deceiver has drawn in his victims with truth, he now moves to the lie, and that's verse 10. Verse 10 is the lie, and verse 10 says, come on. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. That's the lie. He has told his people this lie. This is, remember now, we're in verse nine where he's speaking to his Egyptian people. He's doing his political speech. He's doing his speech to get them on board, to convince them. And he's told his people this lie and it worked. The lie worked, and Pharaoh was successful because the next thing we read in verse 11 is very, very interesting. It says, therefore did they set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burden. Now, we know Pharaoh was successful in rallying the Egyptian people to hate the Jewish people because it says that it was the Egyptian people who set the taskmasters over the Jewish people. It was, the verse 11 does not say that Pharaoh set the taskmasters over the Jewish people. It was the Egyptians who set the taskmasters over the Jewish people. So you can imagine the horror of the Jewish people as they watched helplessly, as Pharaoh called them disloyal. Pharaoh convinced the Egyptian people that the Jewish people were traitors to the Egyptian people and had to be eliminated. 
This was very much like the horror and the helplessness that the Jewish people have experienced many times in their history, not just here, not just with Adolf Hitler, but also during the Persian Empire. They experienced this helplessness as they were scattered or spread, the Jewish people, throughout Persia, and they helplessly watched as notices were put up all over Persia that called for all the Jewish people, young and old, little children and women, to be destroyed on one day, the 13th day of the last month, called Adar. This was just like the Jewish people who watched in horror and helplessness as in Nazi Germany as they watch Hitler persuade, like Pharaoh, the German people that this is a people to be hated and destroyed, the Jewish people. So the word they, that word they, where it says, therefore they did set over them past masters is very important because it shows that Pharaoh had been successful in causing the Egyptian people to hate the Jewish people. Now, as for the point of view of the Jewish people, here was a people and the Egyptians had had good relationships with them and now because of a new ruler, he has caused them to be a hated people. He's convinced his people that they must destroy the Jewish people. So we read, it's the Egyptian people who set these taskmasters over them. And then the next thing we read in verse 11 is what was the duty of these taskmasters? And what was the purpose of the Egyptian people in setting the taskmasters over them? And we see these words, to afflict them, to afflict them, that was the purpose. Now that's a very interesting word, that word afflict means here to put down or to force them down or to humiliate them. It's a word used to describe when a woman is overpowered by a man and raped, the sense of putting down into humiliation. That's why the word is used in describing that horrible history between Amnon, the brother, to his sister Tamar when he raped her. In essence, it means to depress or to make very low. So this means that Pharaoh was so successful that the Egyptian people had no qualms, no problems about pushing the Jewish people down. And so successful was Pharaoh that the Egyptians themselves enslaved the Jewish people and they set about to depress them, to depress them. You know, that's the strategy of the devil, to depress them. The strategy of the devil is described on what he does to Christians, what he does to the people of God in Daniel 7.25, where we read, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Daniel said, a day is coming when men will follow a leader who will continually speak great words, high and mighty words of great pride against God. And what this will do to Christians is that it will grate on them, and it will grate on them, and it will grate on them. It'll grate on the people of God, and the people of God will have such a battle fighting against this proud blasphemy that it's just gonna wear them out. It's just what it says, it's gonna wear out the saints. It's gonna wear them out, it's gonna exhaust them. And that verse does not say that the proud boasters against God will try to, will try to wear out the saints. It says that they will wear out the saints. Now, to wear out the saints means to put them into a state of depression. 
And when the Egyptian people put those taskmasters over the Jewish people, their primary goal was not to get the pyramids built. You know, they didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, we gotta build a lot of pyramids here. How are we gonna get it done? I know, we got some people we can enslave, let's do it. That wasn't their purpose. That was collateral. That was what got done in the process. Their purpose was to afflict them, was to depress them. Notice carefully the wording in verse seven where it says, therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. So that was their goal. Their goal was very, very clear. It was not to build the pyramids. They got built anyway. That was the side benefit to them, the treasure cities as they're listed here, of Python and Ramses built for them. That was not their primary goal. Their primary goal was to afflict them. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California, Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org, tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051.